1: What's that? Uh, taxi driver? Ah, yeah, cool! And uh, shower head, big knife. Is that psycho? Okay. Dancing lady. Are, are those wolves? Dances with wolves? They kind of look more like foxes or a hedgehog. Okay, what's this? Uh, a radio, another wolf slash fox, and lots of people. Radio Fox Group, Radio Wolf
2: Bunch, Radio Wolfgang,
3: Radio
1: Wolfgang emoji title. I love it. Smiley love heart eyes winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio. Winter. Yeah, we're back on air. The ghost's down, but we don't care. We're mobile now. We're everywhere. Yeah, Radio is back on. Air.
4: Run sequence There is a limit Even to the imagination Human teleportation Molecular decimation breakdown and reformation Is
1: inherently purging Where our greatest creations Meet our deepest fears
4: Something went wrong Seth When you went through Something went wrong
2: about to go beyond that limit. Mm-hmm. What are we waiting for? Let's do it. I
4: don't think I get it. What happened? You get it, all right. You just can't handle it. Your stocking has just been teleported from one pod to another. Disintegrated there and reintegrate there. Sort
0: of. It'll change the world as we know it. Right. So, in principle, quantum teleportation could also, one day in future, allow us to teleport you or me or some other person from here to there. you
2: changing, son.
4: Everything about you is changing. From there, then, some of those females' offspring um, had the gene, and they were able to demonstrate that... Uh, using hormonal stimulation, that the gene was actually produced in the milk. Um, they then bred those goats and, uh, and started a, a herd of goats that produced spider cell protein. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I took them to a lab, I had them analyzed. Had the lab had trouble identifying them. They finally came to the conclusion that they were very likely insect hairs.
2: And of course, We as humans have been transgenic for as long as we've been around because, in fact, viruses get into our bodies, particularly when we were in the olden days, um, when hygiene wasn't so so profound.
4: Have you ever heard of insect
1: politics?
2: Neither
4: have
1: I. Our research and other people's research seems to suggest that, that humans like to see themselves as, I suppose, unique from the rest of the animal kingdom. In fact, very few of us identify as animals at all. So, when you have a human-animal hybrid, I guess it directly questions and challenges that notion of distinctiveness. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal.
4: No compassion, no compromise.
5: Hello and welcome to science This is the podcast that explores the science within fiction. So we take a film or a film or sometimes a film and then we, we look at the science within it. And we ask three big questions. Uh, so those big questions are things like Dr. Michael Brooks, what's an example? Uh, can we clone a human being? Mm. Put no. him on the spot there and he's, did. he's not yeah, really yeah. delivered. I really
3: wasn't expecting that.
5: Do you want to have another go? Can we travel through time? Much better. Much bigger question. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at the fly, which is an absolute classic and i think we're specifically looking at the jeff goldblum david cronenberg look ride. nowhere else because the one from like the late 50s which i have also seen a long time ago is oh. i mean it's uh, thank you that <laughs> makes mean, you a proper uh, film buff doesn't it yeah, really It well i think my parents forced me to watch it once Ooh. so yeah we'll look at the the david cronenberg film with jeff goldblum it is absolutely ideal in many many ways and then there's quite a lot of <laughs> bits that aren't so great the basic premise is that Jeff Goldblum is a scientist called Seth Brundle and he has, he thinks, cracked teleportation. So in his old warehouse laboratory, he's got these two teleportation pods and he is able to teleport non-organic, non-living matter. Which is pretty good, yeah. And he shows it to Gina Davis, who is a science journalist. She's like, "Love it, yeah." Can I write about this? He's like, "No, I want to hold off until I've really cracked it and got the got the living matter going through." And then they are banging at one point, or maybe it's immediately post-bang. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so they're chatting afterwards, and either him or her, I can't remember which, says, "Oh, I just want to like eat up your flesh." And then Goldblum has this kind of revelation. He's like, "Ah, the computer doesn't understand the flesh. It's just sort of..." coming up with his own approximation. I need to explain the flesh to the computer. And then he's like, right, great. How's that done? Yeah, and then he tries it with a baboon... And the first time he tries it with a baboon, it doesn't work, and it's really horrible. <laughs> and there's well, there's of,
3: quite a lot that's really horrible. In yeah, this film, there's this like yeah.
5: bloody sort of mess. It's sort of inside out, isn't that, it? Yeah, and then he he taps a bit more stuff in, and then does it with the baboon's brother, and <laughs> and it works, and the baboon is ideal. So it all going very nicely so far. And then uh, there's a kind of subplot, which is that Gina Davis's boss, they used to be going out, and she has to go off and tell him that she doesn't want to see him anymore. But Brundle gets very paranoid, and so he gets drunk and he thinks, do you know what, I'm just going to pop myself through the old teleporter. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that's going to make me feel better is uh, hopping in the teleporter. So he gets in. As drunk decisions go, that is a pretty bad one, isn't it? Well, do you know what, it could have been absolutely fine, but unfortunately, he goes through, it's a success... He feels fantastic and kind of energised. And then Gene Davis comes over and she's like, you seem sort of slightly different. He's like, yeah, you've got to go through. Like, it just really, like, it's like the ultimate pick-me-up. Sounds like he's on something. Yeah, and what he's on is fly. Uh, <laughs> because unbeknownst to him, a fly has got into the teleporter. And what the teleporter has done is it's looked at the two... Like, it, it's, I mean, it's very hazy. Sort of looked at the genomes and gone, well... Let's just yes, them- <laughs> I'll splice them together, will I? <laughs> and so it's done that. And so then the rest of the film is just Goldblum turning into a fly. Yeah, yeah. Which is done sort of quite badly. <laughs> Generally, he he just looks, yeah, like, like he's been in a fire. And then at the very end, he looks like a fleshy fly that's been in a fire. And then ultimately, in <laughs> quite grisly stuff, he wants to sort of splice himself as the sort of brundle fly, which is the hybrid of him and the fly, with Gina Davis and their unborn child, who may also be half-fly, <laughs> or a quarter-fly, I guess. I'm guessing and Gina's not so keen. Gina's not mad on it, but he, he sort of popped her in, and then she managed to get out. So the merge, the gene splice, still happens, and so the Brundlefly merges with the teleportation pod. Oh. <laughs> and so it sort of comes out as this thing that looks a bit like, well, it looks like a few things. It looks a bit like an inverted human, a bit like not very much like a fly, and then a bit like the pod, and then they shoot it in the head. <laughs> it does make you think, oh, teleportation. <laughs> don't mind if I do. <laughs> or, no, thanks, surely. I, I don't know. It's pretty good. But, and actually, in fairness, at no point in the film was it suggested that he hasn't cracked teleportation. It's just he needs to get slightly better lab conditions and not start merging with flies. Yeah. And so I think that's a good place to start. And our first question will be, can we do teleportation? And who better to ask that than University of Calgary physicist Professor Wolfgang Tietl, who started by telling us how classical teleportation, think the old beam-me-up Scotty, is a load of tosh.
0: Well, there are two different aspects to it, actually. In classical teleportation, what I understand about it from looking at Star Trek is that uh, there is something and then there is some light, and then something appears somewhere else. So I'm not sure how this is done. Star Trek is not particularly precise about it. But what I could imagine is that you somehow measure what you want to teleport. Assume it's a table for for simplicity right now. You could measure how how wide it is, how tall it is. Uh, You look at what color it has, and then you just send all this information over to the place where you put the table to be and then you have something like a 3d printer that recreates the table based on the material that is already available there meaning some plastic that can be molded and then put in the form of this table so you have actually not moved the table from one place to the other what you have done is you have reproduced exactly the same table in another place So that is what I could imagine one could call classical teleportation. But what it actually is, is just the transmission of the building code and then the rebuilding of an identical looking object, an object that looks identical to the one that you wanted to teleport. Now, what is a bit surprising in Star Trek is that number one, while you can teleport anywhere without that, this 3D printer or the, the material out of which it should form that table is in that place. You can just say, okay, I want to teleport something there or here or to Great Britain or to Canada, and it just happens. So I have no idea how the material gets there in the first place. And also it seems that the teleportation in Star Trek works almost instantaneous. That is not possible in the world that I know of, where the transfer of information can only be at the speed of light. So it would take some time to move somebody from here to a different star that is very far away.
5: So Professor Wolfgang is saying no. He's being no. quite literal, isn't he? He's saying no, can't be
3: done. Not but We don't mind not... literal. Well, Literal's he, okay. Yeah, I mean, what he's saying is
5: there is no way to
3: envisage how you would do
5: this. Oh, so you're you're saying it might be a limit of Professor Wolfgang's imagination?
3: Well, I'm just saying, you know... Obviously, you can't do it, except part of me thinks, you know, who knows? Maybe somebody will come up with something. You know, he's talking about, you know, being able to transmit from one place to another. But Mm -hmm. really, you're talking about recreating the information that makes up something Mm -hmm. in a different place. Mm -hmm. So the only thing you need to transmit is the information, which I know goes at the speed of light
5: maximum, But it feels like... Listen, I take that. If it's that we can have teleportation, but maybe there's a five-minute lag for me to get to Mars, (laughs) like, that is okay.
3: But do you know what the big problem is? The big problem is what happens to the original?
5: Yeah, so this is the teleportation paradox, right? So, as Professor Wolfgang said, in fact, you're not transferring the original to there no. you're, you're copying it It's just a fax yeah. so you've
3: still got the original when you send a fax whereas you know, if we're teleporting you we don't want the original Rick left in one place and actually some new copy of Rick because then you'd end you, up with a just... universe full
5: of Ricks wouldn't you oh, so that
3: is what you want <laughs> it's what nobody wants
5: but you effectively you'd have to destroy the original yeah. in, in, and you could do that in any way you like it doesn't really matter you could, you could just shoot me it doesn't matter <laughs> exactly
3: so who's going to do that Like if the machine just literally copies The only way you can make sure that you don't have lots of them is that the machine actually
5: destroys when it copies. Mm. But also, is the one... So let's say we're, we're sticking me on Mars. Yeah. Is the me that is being reconstructed on Mars, is it me? Yes, because you'd have exactly the same brain. All the physical states
3: are exactly the same. It's an exact replica of you. So therefore all memories encoded in exactly the same way, so as far as you know, it would be you. But that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that sort of delves into our understanding of what it means to be an individual, a a
5: person, a human being. But at the point after Reconstruction, then those two me's are kind of diverging, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So we're becoming something unique, sort of. Yeah, I I can see that you're really liking this idea, aren't you? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sort of... (laughs) I'm seeing a clone army, (laughs) and I don't mind it. Yeah. All of us I'm, just lining up on Mars. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, I mean, it's a massive use of resources, isn't it? I mean, the amount of energy you'd need to create a human being from scratch, from you know just a bunch of atoms. What are you going to do? Take a load of carbon atoms and put them all together. And Yes. Oh,
5: That's exactly what I'm going to do.
3: Yeah.
5: And it, essentially, this isn't going to happen, is it? It's not
3: exactly going to happen like that. But don't worry, quantum is on it. Oh.
0: Where quantum teleportation differs from classical teleportation is that it is not possible to measure the properties of a quantum particle, like a photon or an atom. It is not like you have a table in front of you, you can measure its dimensions and um, then you just communicate the results of these measurements to the other place the quantum world doesn't allow us to do so because if we start to measure something we modify something else if we would measure the height of the table we would modify its width so it's completely impossible to find the building instructions of that table or any other quantum object that allows us to reproduce this table somewhere else well that just fails in the quantum world because you cannot measure something. Measuring something modifies it. But there is a way to get around that. And to do so, we need what we call entangled particles. These are photons, for instance, that share their properties, which means that they would always react in the same way on a measurement. That sounds complicated, but as an example, think of me flipping two coins, one in my right hand and one in my left hand. our normal coins, we will see all combinations of outcomes: one head, the other tail, or the first tail, the the uh, the second one heads, or both heads or both tails. In the quantum world, if these were quantum coins, they would always fall on the same side. And what does that, or what connects these two, or well, that has been um, referred to by Einstein as spooky action, because it it really doesn't mean make sense. The coins that we have don't do that, but the predictions of quantum mechanics for quantum coins they predict exactly that.
1: Consider one, probability is a factor which operates within natural forces. Two, probability is not operating as a factor. Three, we are now held within un-, sub-, or supernatural forces.
0: Discuss. So now suppose you have such a pair of quantum coins and you would like to teleport the non-measurable state of yet another coin, you would like to teleport the state of that coin that you cannot measure over to another place. So what you can do is you also create a pair of entangled coins. You move one of these entangled coins first to the place where you would like the teleported object to show up and the second coin, while you have it interact, you measure it somehow jointly with a coin whose state you would like to teleport. And this measurement does actually not reveal what the property of this first coin is. It only tells you it's the same as the second coin or it's different from that of the second coin. And now if you assume the outcome is it's the same, well you know that coin A is equal to coin B and you know that the coin B is equal to its entangled partner, coin C, well, that means that right now, coin C is exactly the same state as coin A, even though you don't know in which state it was to start with. So in a way, you have been able to move a state from a particle that you cannot measure onto another particle. But quantum teleportation does not overcome the fact that the speed of the transfer of information is limited by the speed of light. It's not easy. I mean, quantum teleportation is
3: really, really complicated. And actually, you can only really understand it when you do the maths of it and you go through the maths of how each particle relates to the other one. But in a nutshell, it involves entanglement. When you've got two entangled particles, they share their properties, right? So if I've got B and C, these two particles that are entangled together, then I can do something to B and it will affect the state of C instantaneously. Over what kind of distance? Over any distance. Once they're entangled, they can be across the universe and it makes no difference. It will instantaneously change the properties. Hang on.
5: Instantaneously?
3: Yes, instantaneously. So not limited by the speed of light. That bit is not limited by the speed of light. Okay. Okay. So I can do that, but the thing is... How does that work? (laughs) Nobody knows. No no idea? No idea. Nobody knows. So these particles
5: are communicating...
3: No, because you can't transfer information that way. Okay. But they are in some way invisibly linked. They are what what physicists call correlated. Right. So the state of one will affect the state of the other. Mm. But the point is that you actually can't know the state of either of them entirely. Perfect. So so what you're actually doing is transferring almost the uncertainty surrounding a measurement, the result of a measurement you make on one, and that will then change the result of a measurement you would make on the
5: other one. It's not exactly okay. beam me up, is it? It's not. Okay. Nothing's actually getting transferred here.
3: But the information about that object is being transferred, and that's actually all you need to produce an identical copy. If you've got you know, a photon and another photon, if you take the state of one and put it onto the other one, then actually, that is indistinguishable from the first one. So, so and then is... shoot the first photon. <laughs> it is. It does kind of work. Yeah, you know, it is a kind of teleportation.
5: I'm going to say that if you said to most people, "Ah, we've got a teleportation device," and then you described that, they would be pretty disappointed.
3: Yeah, and it is only single particles, and it is really working with photons of light as well. So it's not quite beam me up, Scotty.
5: No, it feels like they're both kind of called teleportation but they're not really related they sort of are
3: in that you know you are effectively creating a you know an identical version mm. of that
5: particle somewhere else so when professor wolfgang is talking about the the measurements and saying if it was a table then he could measure the length of the table but then the width would change what are the equivalent measurements at the quantum level so it's that they are like it's sort of horizontal and vertical and phase is that so, yeah, those my
3: measurements? Yeah, you would you would make those measurements. I mean, the classical way of thinking about it is is if you measure something's velocity, you'll change its position. Okay. So you know, there's no measurement that you can do of the velocity or momentum of something that doesn't actually sort of mean that you don't affect its position or, you, or affect your knowledge of its position. So quantum teleportation gets around this by actually performing measurements, but you, you don't actually find out the answer. You know, it's sort of, you, you're never given all the information.
5: But you know that one thing is in the same state as another. Yeah. You just don't know exactly what that state is. Yeah. So we put
3: this to use and you can buy commercially available systems that use this in a thing called quantum key distribution for quantum cryptography. So there are now ways of sending keys for crypto systems for encoding stuff. Basically via teleportation. And Wolfgang is part of a group, I mean, he has the world record for sending these things over kilometers of optical fiber now, which probably doesn't impress you all that much. But actually, you know, we're starting to learn how to distribute these keys in a way that nobody can break into these secrets. These are crypto systems protected by the laws of physics. To be clear.
5: I am not saying that this whole enterprise is a load of old rubbish. <laughs> I, oh, I'm I very totally, glad. Everyone's yeah. <laughs> very relieved to hear I, that. I understand that there is useful application of this. So you're effectively saying like an unhackable yeah. system because yeah. you can't intercept that information yeah. because we yeah. don't quite know how it's...
3: If you intercept it, you change that relationship of the, oh, the, sorry. the oh, data. Oh, great, yeah. So actually, you know, as soon as anyone tries to
5: intercept it, you ruin it. So you're using the uncertainty principle yeah. against yeah. the hacker. yeah. yeah okay so that's good
3: I'm oh, saying you.
5: that it still isn't teleportation <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying oh well, it's not the teleportation that I want yeah okay I, I can accept that I, I'm, I'm happy to use it in you know for my passwords on my phone or whatever <laughs> if I
4: must <laughs> Well, what happens when you try to teleport living things not while we're eating can't be worse than this She's not ready yet
5: seems to work okay
4: no, something important missing. Which is? I can only teleport inanimate objects.
0: So in principle, quantum teleportation could also, one day in future, allow us to teleport you or me or some other person from here to there. We are very far away from that. What has been teleported until now is the state of one atom or the state of two photons. So very, very simple things. And of course, human beings are composed of atoms, and one could well imagine that each atom which itself is a quantum particle, or that this quantum feature is required in order to rebuild a human being somewhere else. Uh, so we need quantum teleportation, and not just the classical measurement that, that looks at how tall we are and what we weight, and then tries to reestablish ourselves somewhere else. So it may well be necessary to have quantum teleportation. but to go from the current state-of-the-art in quantum teleportation, as it has been demonstrated in the lab or also outside the lab, to teleporting an entire human being, I'm pretty sure I will be retired by that.
5: Now, Professor Wolfgang there is saying that, okay, we're a long way off, but maybe we could quantum teleport a human, isn't he? He is. He's saying it won't happen for a long time. I mean,
3: because essentially, a human being is just a collection of atoms. Mm-hmm. You know, we are arranged in a very specific way, which is just information. And you can you could encode all of that ordering of the atoms that make up our bodies. Uh, so you've just got information. If you've got information, you can encode that onto a physical thing like a, a photon or a lot of photons, obviously, it would take. Mm-hmm. And then you could send that through the optical fibers or whatever, or through a satellite network, and actually you could recreate using you know, a different set of atoms. You could order them up and have a machine that puts them in exactly the same order, and then you have got that same human recreated. So yeah, you, in principle,
5: it's possible. So you have a facsimile of the... Yeah. And in terms of order of magnitude, how much information are we talking feels like quite a lot <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think quite a lot is uh, is an underestimate I mean it's just mind boggling I mean it's impossible to imagine how much information that is
4: says, please I was not pure the teleporter insisted on your pure I was not pure I don't know what you mean a fly got into the transmitter pied with me that first time when I was alone. Uh, The computer got confused. There weren't supposed to be two separate genetic patterns and it decided to uh, splice us together. It made it as me and the fly. We hadn't even been properly introduced. My teleporter turned into a gene splicer. a very good one. Now I'm not Seth Brindle anymore. I'm the offspring of Brundle
5: and Hushfall. So quantum physicists are very keen on getting it exactly right. What's explored in the in the film is what happens when it goes wrong, and it, it's pretty good actually. <laughs> yeah. So you have this kind of, I guess, like a partial, incorrect exchange of information that ends up with the hybrids of Seth Brundle and a fly. And that's what we're gonna look at for the rest of the show, hybrids. And so our second question then is, could we ever create a human-fly hybrid? But before we get there, we need a little lesson in transgenics. Uh, this is something that University of Cambridge geneticist, Professor Anne Ferguson-Smith knows all about.
2: Transgenics is when you take genetic information from one place and put it somewhere else. (laughs) And of course, we as humans have been transgenic for as long as we've been around because, in fact, viruses get into our bodies, particularly when we were in the olden days um, when hygiene wasn't so profound. And we have um, lots of foreign DNA integrated into our genomes that has come from viruses. And in fact, the earliest experimental transgenics in the 70s or thereabouts, were made through the deliberate infection of mice and other organisms with viruses that could integrate into your genomes. And sometimes you can make these viruses carry pieces of genetic information that they don't normally have and you can use the virus as a vector to transmit DNA from one place into a mammal, usually a mouse. So those were the early mammalian transgenic studies, the earliest ones. After that, people use different kinds of vectors. For example, plasmids, sequences of DNA that are usually found in bacteria. They're quite easy to manipulate and generate in bulk to put pieces of human genes in, in fact. And then you could inject those into newly fertilized eggs of a mouse and make all the cells in that mouse carry that particular integrated piece of foreign DNA so these early transgenic experiments indicated that you could take DNA from one organism and put, it in, put them into another and have it transmitted from one generation to the next.
0: Researchers here and a group in London have applied for permission to fuse parts of animal and human cells in order to create stem cells. But it's proving controversial. This embryo is part mouse, part cow. In a few months, this Newcastle lab is hoping to create a human cow hybrid. My
5: moral objection is that uh, we would effectively be mixing animal and human embryos and mixing species. We're
1: actually, you're using very, very little information from the cow in order to do this reprogramming idea. The starting point is a cow's egg, which is
0: cut open by a laser. The DNA is sucked out.
2: So, while these very early transgenic studies randomly integrated pieces of DNA from the outside into the mouse genome, the method of homologous recombination that was uh, recognized um, a few years ago with the Nobel Prize to Mario Capecchi and Oliver Smithies actually allowed you to target particular regions of the genome, which meant that you could go in and put particular mutations in particular genes and model human diseases in a mouse. Or you could even play around with regulatory regions and either turn genes on or turn genes off at will. So you could do a much more controlled, much more intelligent kind of analysis of gene function and gene regulation an abnormal gene expression in vivo in the mouse.
5: Come on then, tell me some more about homologous recombination. <laughs> <laughs> Gagging for it. I am, actually.
3: Um, I mean, it's, it's a very simple idea, basically, is you take you know the genetic code from one creature and put it into another, You know, splice it into the DNA. A uh, classic example is um, jellyfish proteins. So you can put them into something, and when a gene turns on or something activates biologically, you then get a fluorescence. So you get something that actually flashes when you're getting it to do the job that you want it to do so you can monitor you know whether whether it's actually working or not
5: i saw this somewhere with monkeys some sort of little monkeys and they'd put some genes relating to huntingdon's disease i think into the monkeys great guys and to check that it worked they popped in a, a green jellyfish yeah bit of code and the monkeys came out bright green <laughs> Yeah, and they were like, "Oh, result! <laughs> <laughs> We've got these terribly sick monkeys." Monkeys having agreed. a yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. sorry, monkeys.
3: You can, I mean, you can do more positive things. Like you can get bacteria to express insulin. Then the bacteria basically takes in food and excretes insulin, which you can then harvest and use for diabetics. Craig Venter's on a big one at the moment to basically get E. coli to produce diesel. So you sort of change some of the genetics within a uh, bacterium and you can get it to excrete something as as useful as diesel fuel. So so it's all about manipulating genomes
4: basically. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah.
5: Someone who's been absolutely loving transgenic technology since day one is this legend.
4: So my name is Randy Lewis. I'm a U star professor of biology at Utah State University. Randy's
5: also got a bit of a thing about spider silk. Namely, he wants to get his hands on as much of it as he possibly can.
4: I think from very early on, we recognised that that you weren't going to be able to farm spiders. As I somewhat jokingly, but for real, tell people, um, they have two personality defects. The spiders are both territorial and they're cannibalistic. So when you try to raise them, they kill each other until everybody has enough space. Um, in addition, the problem is that the spiders that we work with make the typical round web called an orb web. And the web itself is made out of four different kinds of silks with very different mechanical properties. So you have one that has really no elasticity. You have another one that'll stretch as far as a rubber band. Um, you have one that's very weak and one that's as strong as Kevlar. So um, just collecting the webs would not really benefit you very much. Um, so it, it was pretty early on that we recognized that that for any kind of large scale production, Uh, We were going to have to use a different organism than spiders.
1: Here's an old mother goose rhyme, slightly goosed. Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet eating goat milk, curds, and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and said, My web silk's in that milk, I say. A spider web in goat milk, even before it comes out of the goat? It may sound like a 1950s B-grade science fiction movie, but it's real. In this new era of transgenic science, Spider-Man is out, and the spider goat is in.
4: We were contacted by a company in Canada called Nexia Biotechnologies, who developed a technology for doing the same kind of protein production in goats, and in particularly in goat's milk. So we got together with them using their technology and our expertise on the genes um, and started the process. So we basically put together the the process that they used, which was our gene. They put it together with control elements in in the DNA uh, of goats that specifically would provide this protein that we were putting in there that would only be made in the milk and only during lactation. So, They were able to to put the gene together with ours. That gene construct is passage into embryos. Uh, Then you basically transfer the embryo to to a mama goat and you start raising babies. And then when they're out, um, you do a genetic exam and see if they have the spider silk gene. They got very lucky. The very first goat they got was a male. Um, So obviously he was able to mate with um, a large number of females. And from there, then some of those females' offspring um, had the gene and they were able to demonstrate using hormonal stimulation that the gene was actually produced in the milk. Um, they then bred those goats and started a, a herd of goats that produced spider silk protein. Yes, Randy. <laughs> the guy's made a spider goat. That's what
3: I'm talking about. Enough said, isn't it, really? I mean, he's he's got a goat that's also a spider.
5: Ah, oh, I mean, it's a shame, obviously, that the goat doesn't have eight legs. <laughs> That's, if I have one criticism, it would oh be that. Oh, my God. I can't believe, not only are the quantum guys not good enough for you. No, no, no. I'm saying, listen, Randy, I, I'm very... Randy, has your goat only got four <laughs> legs? That's very disappointing. <laughs> I'm saying I still love it. Okay. But, I mean, okay, are you telling me you wouldn't like it if the spider goat didn't have eight okay, legs? Next, yes, you would. <laughs> of course you'd want that. So he's just nicking the, the silk protein out of the milk?
3: Yeah. So, you just, it's basically a chemical process. Whip Uh, it out and there you go. Yeah, yeah.
5: What a total, total baller. Yeah. That's one of the best things I've heard. (laughs) Genuinely, I love it. What about other sort of chimera stuff? I'm not sure I can quite
3: match up to the spider goats, but but we're, we're doing things like, you know, growing a rat pancreas inside a mouse. Mm, keep um, talking. <laughs> the, the whole idea is to be able to grow organs inside, you know, other animals. So, so the idea really is human organs. Let's be honest, yeah. we're selfish about this. You know, we've got people waiting for transplants. You know, I was
5: going to say, are there really like a waiting list of rats who need a new pancreas? <laughs> no, no, the rats... Are, <laughs> (laughs) The rats are
3: quite okay for pancreases, uh, and the mice are not that keen on giving the the rats a
5: pancreas either. (laughs) No. no, no. Imagine the the mouse is thinking, well, the problem with this is it's too big for me. (laughs) It doesn't fit. So, so you knock out
3: the gene that would produce the pancreas in the mouse yeah. so the mice grow without pancreas but because they've got the rat pancreas genes in there working or the stem cells rather they're induced to they actually grow kick in. they kick in they mm. grow a rat pancreas uh, which you could take out and transplant into a rat and they, they function like a rat pancreas not a mouse pancreas and so the idea of course is to do this for human organs so you grow a human liver not inside a mouse obviously again not a good fit Mm. But uh, you take a pig and you knock out... Great fit. Yeah, a pig is actually a surprisingly good fit, which is why we use heart valves from pigs in surgery. So you knock out the genes that would create the pig liver, you put in the human stem cells, which are induced to grow into a human liver inside the pig, you harvest the liver from the pig, and then you've got yourself a human liver ready for transplant.
5: Very nice. And we've been knocking around with this kind of animal-human hybrid stuff for a while, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. It's we quite are. naughty, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Since like the sort of 1920s. So the idea originally was to say, oh, you know, could we mix humans and primates, and therefore show that there's no distinction between the species? So it was meant to be a kind of backup for Darwin's yeah. theories. So the idea was to either inseminate a chimp using human sperm or to inseminate a human using orangutan. they just orangutan. getting volunteers for that. So the idea, this was in Russia, a guy called uh, Ilya Ivanovich. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was able to get volunteers, female volunteers, humans, to take some orangutan sperm and see if they could basically gestate a baby that was half orangutan. Hang
5: on, how are but, they taking it?
3: What, <laughs> from the orangutan? Yeah. Well, they... they details. Details. They went for an orangutan. Oh, what? Brooksy! Well, I don't know how to put it more delicately, really. So, I mean, yeah, and they've done this before with with. Uh, it's also,
5: it just feels a bit seedy now, doesn't it? Oh, that's terrible. That wasn't even an intentional pun. Really? I genuinely think it's a bit seedy. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of all these poor, poor Russian women off orangutans. Well,
3: well, actually, the orangutan died before they were able to do this experiment. So, and it was oh. the, the last one they had in, in Soviet Russia at the time. That's uh, true. But they, uh, the g- same guy had tried it in uh, West Africa before with chimps. Oh, he's right uh, on it. Yeah, he? Yeah, he'd, he'd attempted basically to inseminate
5: chimps with human sperm. No success. So thus far, we've had no success with a kind of monkey-human hybrid. But with stuff moving apace... Would it ever be possible? Professor Ann? again.
2: When it comes to transgenic in humans, of course, there are major social and ethical issues that we in the UK take very, very seriously. And we're very fortunate to be in the UK that takes this kind of thing very seriously. Uh, we do have the technology to manipulate the human genome. And indeed, very recently, the first license to modify the human pre-implantation embryo was just granted. There was a lot of debate about it a lot of fact-finding, and it was very, very carefully considered by the HFEA. But theoretically speaking, yes, you can do CRISPR-Cas9 technology on human cells and human embryos.
4: You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing.
2: You look bad. You smell bad.
4: I've never been much of a bather.
2: We take the situation of the fly the movie where an adult male has genetic information that is transported into a lowly housefly, then the situation is probably not possible. Not least because the human concern is an adult and most of the plasticity that's associated with making body parts and turning you into the shape and individual that you are happens when you're uh, developing embryo. And in fact, the adult body is full of cells that are not really capable, in vivo at least, to change into something new or to something that they're not.
5: So the only problem with the fly then is that Brundle is an adult. If it was a Brundle baby (laughs) (laughs) or a Brundle embryo, then plausible. Is this what happens in the sequel? There is a sequel, isn't there? I've never seen it.
3: There should be a baby and it should go into a transport. Well, hang
5: on. Yeah, I mean, there's an obvious way for it because Gina Davis is pregnant with an embryo that I guess would be about, yeah, a quarter fly.
3: So so the next level experiment would be to put fly genes into a human embryo and see what happens effectively. That's what we're talking about really,
5: isn't it? Yes. So although we're not at the moment saying you can do anything like that, sort of putting animal code into a human genome we are saying that we can do a bit of tinkering with the human genome using CRISPR, aren't we?
3: Yeah, we can. And, and we should as well, I think. We definitely should. We've got this thing called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a way of editing the human genome. It means we can edit out, you know, the things that create heritable diseases. So, you know, why pass those on down the generations if we don't need to? And we've got permission now from the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority to start sort of tinkering with embryos. So not just you know a kind of sperm or egg, but actually things that live for seven days or so so we can see how the, the edits start to play out as the blastocyst develops.
5: So I guess what we're not going to do is let it develop to a sort of, you know, like a 20-week embryo. No. That's not no, happening. That's, that's not allowed at we're all. We're just looking at the very early stages of development. Yeah. Is, is the worry not that our understanding of the genome is not quite good enough yet to understand the full implications of altering so let's say for example that we think we've isolated five genes that together produce an undesirable trait or condition or illness so we sub them out for the the good versions of the genes or just get rid of whatever yeah but that has a knock-on effect that we haven't been able to detect as yet yeah so there are
3: yeah interactions between genes uh, we haven't mapped them all out. We don't know exactly what will happen with it. You know, you do an edit here and it can affect the expression of a protein somewhere else. We don't know all the ins and outs of it. But we're getting pretty good, you know, working out in vitro, as it were, you know, working out in the Petri dish, sort of seeing what happens. And then, you know, eventually we'll have to come to a point where we do try
5: this because it's worth doing. And that is the point of this research, isn't it? Yeah. To, to investigate the effects of tampering with various
3: bits yeah. of the code, very, very slowly and very carefully. Mm-hmm.
4: How does Brundlefly eat? Well, he found out the hard and painful way that he's very much the way a fly eats. His teeth are now useless because although he can chew up solid food, he can't digest it. Solid food hurts. So, like a fly, Brundlefly breaks down solids with a corrosive enzyme, playfully called vomit drop. He regurgitates on his food, it liquefies, and then he sucks it back up. Ready for demonstration, kids? It goes. Oh, my
5: God. My God. The thing about all of these human-animal hybrids is that for some reason, it, it makes you sort of, like, just, like, wince a bit. It makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. And that, has been going on for like forever through like myths about minotaurs and centaurs and all that kind of stuff and other mythological creatures, and so for question number three, and I accept that this is a bit more ish than we normally do in science ish, but I want to ask, what is it about human animal hybrids like the the monster in in the fly that makes us feel uncomfortable? And to talk about that, we spoke with an associate professor of psychology from the University of Melbourne, Brock Bastian, and he started by telling us why these human-animal hybrids make us all sort of... Uh,
1: I mean, there's a number of different reasons why that could be the case. Certainly the fact that they seem to be quite unnatural is, is one such thing. And, and I think particularly when we think about what's natural and when those sorts of thoughts really matter to us, it often resonates particularly around our own humanity, I suppose, our own personhoods. And, you know, we we find unnaturalness when it comes to humans a lot more problematic than, say, we might find unnaturalness in other sorts of domains. But again, unnaturalness is something which kind of rubs the wrong way, I suppose, against our intuitions. I think the the other factor as well is that where these things have been merged with humans it it also suggests that i guess it breaks down that boundary between humans and animals and we tend to like to maintain that boundary because it well it's what makes us distinguishable from animals and in some ways at least our research and other people's research seems to suggest that that humans like to see themselves as i suppose unique from the rest of the animal kingdom in fact very few of us identify as animals at all so When you have a human-animal hybrid, I guess it directly questions and challenges that, that, uh, that notion of distinctiveness.
2: Oh, yes, about the human animal. You are a human
1: animal. Our perceptions of animals are very malleable and what tends to drive those perceptions around or shape them is often our own motivations, our own needs, for example. So... You know, we tend to see our pets as somewhat distinctive compared to other animals. We give them more personality. We see them as more human in many ways. Um, And again, that probably, you know, allows us to satisfy a need for connection, um, which we would maybe otherwise satisfy through other people. Although we do differentiate the animals that we see as pets from uh, the animals we use in other ways, and in particular, you know, one of the, th- the ways that we've looked at how we relate to animals is, is how we eat them, uh, meat eating. So we tend to like to keep these things very different. So just as we might elevate the human-like qualities of our pets, because that allows us to feel socially connected with them, we also reduce or minimise the extent to which we might see those same qualities in animals that we might eat, for example. So, again, there's a lot of malleability there in how we do see animals, how we relate to them. And we often use things like seeing ourselves as containing souls, for example, perhaps, you know, historically and more currently seeing ourselves as having different levels of mental capacity different kinds of uniquely human qualities which distinguish us from animals. And again, this notion of human-animal hybrids breaks all that down and it confuses those nice, clear distinctions we've built up.
5: So that is all, all, all quite interesting because it comes down to the fact that we just like to separate ourselves off. And I read something interesting about this where a guy said, the reason that we feel so separate is that all of our close relatives, so... Neanderthals and and and, and Denisovans and, and and all that mob the other hominids because they're not out there it does appear that there's quite a big chasm between us and chimps say
3: yeah yeah but we've also you know created a kind of chasm because it's convenient you know, I think in our minds, you know, it's always been convenient to kind of say, like, they don't feel pain, they, they don't have culture, they, they don't have personalities. You know, that was never allowed in science until fairly recently to talk about animals' personalities. And you've got things like, you know, there was a recent news story that said that lobsters and crabs feel pain when you boil them alive. Mm-hmm. And that's not welcome news, is it? Because actually no. we quite like to eat those things. We know that's how they're cooked. And we kind of like to think that it doesn't matter and that we don't need to treat them with any kind of compassion that we would say reserve for humans. And and we're only just starting to really have that kind of compassion for chimps as well.
5: And So a lot of it comes down to the fact that we eat them. Yeah, I think so. we, we don't want to feel bad about it.
3: Yeah. Hmm. I think we're heading towards a vegetarian future. The more we discover about animal consciousness and their experience of life and the personalities and things like that, the less you want to eat them. In fact, I once asked a consciousness researcher if she had any problems eating animals. And she said, well, I never eat anything that I've studied and I will never study cows. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. (laughs) Because, I mean, you know, the more you explore this, every one of them, as they start to understand, like octopus now, that's a really I, dodgy thing, to eat an
5: octopus. I used to really like an octopus salad, and now I'm, I've, I'm off them. Of yeah, I I, an octopus. I do avoid them on the menu now. Insects it might be the way to go.
3: Yeah, although you know insects have personalities as well. Uh, you, know, you can have a cockroach that's quite timid and a cockroach that's quite aggressive. And there are some researchers who saying you shouldn't put them together. You shouldn't lump all cockroaches together, because some of them really get stressed by being in a cage with others.
5: How about this then? We just farm the aggressive ones and eat them.
3: Yeah, except you, them
5: right. you,
3: you can't just make aggressive ones. Just You can't just make aggressive people. People have personalities that differ, and so do spiders and cockroaches and, and everything else. Oh. And the more you learn about this, the less you want to eat anything that, that basically is alive. No other animal has a problem with eating other animals. No. At all. Including the chimps. Mm. You know, you watch them spear a bush baby.
5: Yeah. You don't get any sense of regret. No. We're almost creating a problem ourselves, aren't we? Yeah. Okay, let's review the questions then. So, first of all, we asked, can we teleport? And the answer is no, but Brooksy and his uh, and his quantum friends think they can do something quite cool, which is. It is quite cool. Yeah. It's teleporting
3: a single state of an atom or whatever. It's not, okay, it's not teleporting a whole person, but, you know, we've got to start extend- somewhere. It
5: could be extended to that yes. one day. Why not? Well, <laughs> quite a lot of reasons. Uh, and then the second question was: Could we create a human-fly hybrid? I think the answer is probably yes. I don't I mean, see why not, not. I don't think you could go half and half. That feels trickier. It doesn't yeah. feel like it's going to be a sort of viable organism. But you'd have you'd have to do a bit of experimentation. But you could probably have, you know, I mean, which bit you want the wings? Wouldn't you? <laughs> you would want the wings and the reactions. Yeah, that's what you want. You want the the processing speed yeah of the fly's brain
3: yes I'm in for that yeah
5: if anybody wants to try it I don't think they can try it on you though they have to try it on you need to have a child uh, embryo that you okay. experiment on All right,
3: I will create an embryo and hand it over
5: and our third question was why do human animal hybrids make us feel a bit uncomfortable and it's because we we just see ourselves as being distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom isn't it
3: yeah nobody's worrying about a liger are they Nobody looks at it and says, "Oh,
5: that's not right." But actually, I do actually. But do you? I think, I, yeah, I'm just like, I don't know why you've done that. It just doesn't feel that still doesn't feel right to me. Doesn't I, I don't, really bother me. I hate dog breeding as well. I think dog breeding is disgusting. I <laughs> think it should be illegal. Okay, so
3: yeah, all right. Maybe I don't like any of it. You're more sensitive than me. I'm okay with a liger. I'm not so great with a human Z, as they're called. No, no.
5: But no one's. But well, we could make a human Z, couldn't we?
3: We could. Hmm. But I don't think
5: we should. No. I'm and it's <laughs>
1: just because I'm a human fly. And I don't know why. I got tears
5: and eyes. Science Ish is a radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Max Sanderson, with sound design by Ivor Slayer Manley. The assistant producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L Scott. This episode featured Professor Wolfgang titel Professor Anne Ferguson Smith, Professor Randy Lewis, and Professor Brock Bastian. <laughs> Uh, And then the the third question was, why do human-animal hybrids make us seem... uh,
1: Why do human-animal... Easy for me to say...